This is your word-by-word conversations with the writer's host, Gil Mansour on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. To launch our second decade, I'm delighted to welcome the international best-selling novelist Jane Green and her newest novel, The Sunshine Sisters. Born in London, Jane Green is considered to be one of the founding authors of Chick Lit. Her 1997 first novel, Straight Talking, made her an overnight success, and her second novel, Jemima J., became an international bestseller. Most of her books have been reviewed as the kind of novel you'll gobble up in a single sitting. Now living in Connecticut with her husband and a blended family of six children, Jane now writes more complex character-driven novels that explore the concerns of real women's lives, from marriage to motherhood to midlife crisis to the complexities of having grown-up children in the just-released novel we will be chatting about today, The Sunshine Sisters. According to web biography, Jane's favorite movie is Groundhog Day, which she could watch over and over and over again and never get bored. Jane Green, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you. Okay. Why don't you tell our listeners a little about about your Sunshine Sisters? Uh, So the Sunshine Sisters is the story of Ronnie Sunshine, who is a rather self-absorbed, narcissistic, difficult mother. She's an actress um, who has really spent her life focusing on her career. And she had three daughters who she wasn't terribly interested in. And the girls grow up to be not only estranged from their mother, but also estranged from each other. And uh, and then when Ronnie Sunshine is diagnosed with a terminal illness, she reaches out to each of the girls. And they're all leading very separate lives. Uh, Nell is the oldest, and she lives in Connecticut where she's a farmer and a single mother who hasn't had a relationship for years. And then there's Meredith, who's the middle daughter and the people pleaser who ran to London to escape her family and is finding that she's engaged to a partner in her accountancy firm who she's realizing she actually might hate. And then there's the youngest daughter, Lizzie, who is the most like her mother. She's selfish and spoiled and and, um, rather compelling. And she is a celebrity chef who has a husband, a toddler, a wonderful career and a lover, and her life is about to explode. And they all come home to see if they can fulfill their mother's final wishes and to discover whether blood may be thicker than water after all. You started your novel in what I call what I thought was a very interesting way. You begin at the deathbed. Mm. Yes. So the first chapter is a reveal of sorts. Mm. So I would I'm trying to figure out why you did it that way. Mm. I mean because you know usually we start we meet the people, something happens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And you could read the book without the first chapter and it would still work. Yeah. Um, I think I I wanted to, you know, that the illness that Ronnie is uh, diagnosed with is ALS. And I chose ALS. That's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. That's right, yes. And for our listeners who may not know, it slowly paralyzes the body. That's right. right. And But actually, and it leaves your mind completely intact. Yes, which and is some, the, some of your tactile areas yes, intact. Yes, and, uh, and, and it's one of the reasons why I chose the disease is because it, it's so – Fascinating. I'm picking for me. it off the shelf over here. Well, yeah, but I I knew I wanted to tell a story of a, of a difficult mother who was diagnosed with a terminal illness, who then chooses to take her own life. And I thought, well, if the mother is difficult and vain and an actress, well, 
what would be worse for her than having a disease where she loses everything but her mental facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, at the same time, I didn't want this to be a political novel and I didn't want this to be a novel about the right to die argument and, and or indeed about ALS particularly. It's mm-hmm. much more a device that brings <laughs> the daughters home. Isn't that funny? That's exactly how I took it. It's yeah. a device. It, yes. it is a device. And that's really why I wanted to get it out in the open. I didn't want there to be any question that this may be a whodunit um, novel or this was about this disease. I wanted to be very clear from the beginning that this is not what this is. This is a, this is a book about characters. So let's, let me tell you, let me reveal this to you first of all, and then we can go and meet the people. Right. That's a perfect segue into a little reading if you could start we're going to meet um, first person we're going to meet is Nell who is um, the oldest and we're ba- and what you've done you've set the book up in an interesting way in that you divided it up about every 10 years mm-hmm. or so 1991 97 um, et cetera, et cetera. you move forward 2007 2016 so we're let's flash back we've read the first chapter we mm-hmm. know what's coming up yeah all right and we're going to meet uh, Nell here in Chapter 5. And it's simple. You see where it says start? I, and it's I a little see. long, but I it's see. got a lot of information in it. Nell walks in the house high as a kite with plans to give rowing a try tomorrow, which means more Lewis Calder. She's practically dizzy with the turn her life has taken. It doesn't even feel real yet. She pauses just inside the front door, trying to gauge the temperature of the house. She does this a lot. They all do this a lot. Pause just inside the front door to try to sniff out their mother's mood, try to figure out who they need to be. Lizzie is the only one who seems not to care, but perhaps it is because she is so young. No, Nell cared, even at ten. Nell always cared. She always knew to remove herself when her mother was in a bad mood. Meredith, on the other hand, would always try to make her mother feel better at such times. Sometimes, Nell can smell her mother's state of mind as soon as she walks in. Other times, she has to tiptoe around, waiting to see the expression on her mother's face. Meredith has described it as a veil. Nell agrees that when her mother is in one of her moods, it is as if a veil of darkness has fallen over her. Today, Nell can't tell what's going on. The house seems unusually quiet. She puts down her backpack and goes into the kitchen. Neither of the other girls are there, which is always a bad sign. When their mother is in a good mood, they are all in the kitchen, doing homework at the table. Sometimes their mother is even there, cooking one of the few dishes she is able to make. Or she's with them, perched on a stool at the island as they all split a packet of Jaffa cakes, which their grandmother sends them over on a regular basis. There is a tiny office off the kitchen, Now Nell can hear noises from the room, knows her mother is in there and in a bad mood. She turns to leave, but it's too late. She has been heard. Nell! Hi, Mum. Nell affects nonchalance. I have a ton of homework. I'm going to go up to my room. Her mother appears in the doorway, invisibly veiled. 
Where have you been? Her voice is flat, as it always is when she's in a fragile state. Nell freezes. She just wants to get away as quickly as possible, but she knows if she leaves too abruptly, even that might trigger her mother. The new rowing club. I just went to check it out. Oh, how was it? Her mother comes in the kitchen now. Do you want something to eat? I'm fine, Nell says. It was great. I might try it. How do you have the time between school and working on the farm? How on earth are you going to fit in rowing? I don't have to do it competitively, Nell says. I just thought it would be fun. How much is it? I don't know anything about it. I just went to see it with a friend from school. Mum, I really have a lot of work. She stops as a loud crash comes from upstairs. What the? Her mother runs up the stairs. Nell following behind. As they reach the master bedroom, an overwhelming stench of Calvin Klein's obsession engulfs them. Her mother's perfume, and on the floor, on hands and knees gathering up broken glass, a stricken look on her face is Meredith. What the hell are you doing? Demands their mother. I'm really sorry. Meredith is so frantically trying to pick up the mess that she hasn't noticed she has already cut her fingers on the glass, and blood is now dripping on the floor, mixing with the pools of musky perfume. Stop touching the glass! Shouts their mother. What happened? Meredith looks down at the floor. Her cheeks are a glittery bronze. Her eyes lined in black. Have you been using my makeup? Their mother has expressly forbidden them to use her makeup, to touch her things, even to come into her bedroom, unless they are invited. The only one who gets away with creeping into this bedroom is Lizzie. But here is Meredith, a chubby thirteen-year-old who has never been interested in clothes, hair, or makeup, standing before them all, made up and bleeding. What have I told you about using my things? Says their mother, fury rising. Nell wants to say something to tell her mother to leave Meredith alone, that it was an accident. But experience has taught her that her mother is unable to hear when she's in this space, that she can feel nothing but her own rising tide of fury. How dare you! She spits out. As Meredith stands still, looking down at the floor, her face bright red. Nell knows how this will go. Her mother needs to get a reaction, needs to see Meredith cry. She knows she can make Meredith cry, and sometimes Nell thinks her mother somehow thrives on controlling that reaction. She's often thought that is perhaps why Lizzie is never the victim of their mother's worst furies. Lizzie won't cry. Lizzie doesn't care when their mother is upset. She just ignores her. As a result, nine times out of ten, if Lizzie does something wrong, their mother will turn and start taking it out on Meredith or Nell. Aha!、Uh-huh. Well, that brilliant reading was by Jane Green from the chapter five of the Sunshine Sisters, and I think it brought us、uh, really quickly to get to know the. Four major characters in the in the book.、Mm, I hope so. It when I read it, all I could think of was Daphne de Maurier, and how she set up her mysteries with the. It, it it's not 
straightforwardly given, but there's an implied threat. Mm. You know, always there, the veil, the, mm. the what, how someone's going to react and lash out. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Because wow. there is a mystery part to that this chapter. Yes, yes, which which I hope is resolved. I mean, I think, goodness, I I think that I what I had in mind when I was writing was um, was Philip Larkin rather than Daphne du Maurier. Oh, okay, all right. Um, and I I think you know I'm one of the poems that I've always loved is this be the verse which I can't actually. I think say on radio I can perhaps substitute a word, but but the first. Verses they they f you up your mum and dad they may not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you mm-hmm. but they were effed up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats and I do I I you know I have sort of loved that poem for years and the idea that that we are all doing the best we can with the knowledge that we have and yet we are all making tremendous mistakes. Um So why is Ronnie Sunshine how she is? Well You kind of present her as a as a uh, we know she's an act. Did you model her after anyone? Yeah, I modelled her on after a number of people that I have known or heard about. You know, I, I have a number of friends with very difficult mothers, but what was so interesting to me was I have one of my closest friends who has a mother who is not unlike Ronnie Sunshine, and she was one of my early readers. And when I gave her the book, she she phoned me up after a couple of days and she said, gosh, it was really, it was it was actually quite painful for me. Right. And I Actually, said, there's a trigger, so to well, speak. I yeah. yes, and yeah. I, I and I I understood immediately. And I said, you did you see your mother? And she said. She said, I did, but I saw myself. And what's so fascinating is if you asked me to describe this friend of mine as a mother, I would tell you that she is the mother I aspire to be. She is calm and patient and she never shouts at her children. But of course, it's the shameful secret that so many of us carry that we all romanticize the idea of motherhood and none of us quite realizes how hard it is and how exhausting it is and how even the best mothers in the world sometimes just lose their temper in in ways that we are not proud of when we are tired and we are having a bad day and uh and Ronnie is particularly bad she just doesn't have a maternal bone in her body she was so why did she have children well, I think as so many women, particularly of an, a different generation, felt that they had to do the right thing. They had to get married. They had to have children. And I think Ronnie, as an actress, um, very much saw herself as part of this glamorous couple. She wanted to have a successful husband. Mm-hmm. And then the children were part of the package. And I think we see this an awful lot in history. With Think about Mummy Dearest and right. and somebody like a, a Joan Crawford. Right. Um, or and, Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, right. so many of these, these Hollywood actresses who really are much more concerned with their own careers. And yet children have to be part of the package, particularly for those publicity shots. Um, and that was very much what I thought about when I was writing Ronnie. 
she didn't have children because she wanted children. She had children because it was part of the package. You know this book, I trust you do, is much more complex than your first novels. She's shaking her head yes. In fact, a lot of those used to be called, uh, you know, the ones to take to the beach to read, you know, yeah. that type of thing. This is much more than that. It's, well, it's, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, I think, I think in a 20-year career, um, you know, in 20 years I have grown and changed and, and gained a lot more wisdom than I had when I first started, <laughs> at least I, I hope so. Um, and, uh, and I'm really interested in, in the sort of vicissitudes of life and the hardships and that we are all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet my books are still packaged as beach reads, which, right. is, which is often a hard thing that you, you look at the book and you think that it's, it's a very a light. beach on the cover. Yeah, it yeah, has a beach yeah. on the cover. You think that they're light beach reads, but none of them in the last few years have been. They have all dealt with quite quite dark subjects, but in a very readable way. And I think, you know, what I've always tried to do, even when I was writing those searching for Mr. Wright, you know, right, early right. chiclet novels, is write with an emotional resonance. You know, I've always wanted to write in a very real way and write the kind of stories that women relate to, whether they've been there or not. Um, And I think mothers and daughters um, are challenging, can be a very challenging relationship. Motherhood is challenging. Um, And biology is not on your side because they make things happen exactly at the wrong time when you're you know, your daughters become teenagers. Yes, yes. yes hormones yeah, raging. Both sides. Yes, yeah. both sides. Exactly. I wouldn't have any experience about that just about now. I'm, I'm said with a heavy dose of sarcasm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, so I'm still trying to write stories that that people relate to. So how did you approach? Let's just talk about this book. Mm. We, we, we could, I mean, we could go back. I remember I, I talked with Olivia Goldsmith, and she told me that she sat down before she did the first Wives mm. Club, and she read, I don't know, twenty or thirty different novels in her genre to find out what people liked, and then included all of those in their first novel. Oh, that's which, interesting. You know, what she had decided would be a success. That was her whole goal and why she wrote it. See, what's interesting to me about that is that I, The Sunshine Sisters was a little different for me in that the, my, the first 12 novels I wrote, I wrote all by myself. I had an editor in London mm-hmm. and they edit very differently in London. The, the craft of writing is not taken quite as seriously in England. Really? Yeah. It's I a would really, have thought, I know. You know it's, yeah. a, it's a really odd thing, but they never require a tremendous amount of editing. And so I would sort of give her an idea and I might – I would have – I wrote half a page on it. I I handed it in. She said, yes, yes, darling, lovely, lovely. Go off and write it. Yeah, but but it wasn't a detailed treatment. It was just a few paragraphs. And I'd go off and I'd write this book and I'd give it to her and she'd phone me up and she'd go, darling, I love it. I love it. I just – let's make the husband a bit stronger. Let's give him a bit more. And, And that was basically it. I never had to do anything. And my first 12 novels were all written like that. And then I changed publisher and I worked with a new editor who built her name doing mysteries, really, and suspense novels. Uh And she – I wrote five novels with her and she required me to write in a completely different way. 
And one of the first things she said to me is, Jane, you have to ask of all your protagonists, what does she want? Why can't she have it? How is she going to get it? And she said, you can distill it down even further to they came, they attacked, we fought back. And she said, things have to get bad, then they have to get worse, then they have to get much, much worse. And so the five novels that I wrote with her, she wanted storylined. And so we would sit down and we would map out this book to the plot points, you know, something terrible had to happen. Well, what if, what if she got pregnant? And we'd sit there together for hours and outline these novels. And the thing is, I I wrote these five novels with her. And technically, I think they may be amongst the best in my career. But I was so focused on the structure and the suspense and the making sure that my protagonist fought back and and all of the I was crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's that I lost sight of the things that I built my name on I lost sight of of what it was the magic that I'd brought with me for the first 12 novels and what that was was characters I lost sight of my characters and I what I became known for initially was was almost a kind of warmth you know, people used to describe my books as the literary equivalent of curling up by a log fire right. with a, a, a blanket and a cup. Right. They're cosy. Right. And I lost that coziness. And so when I started to write The Sunshine Sisters, I actually I wrote the first chunk and then I left it for a year and I wrote another book. I wrote Falling because I didn't think that I had anything here. Mm-hmm. And I went back to it and I realized I had Nell. I had the character of Nell and she was really strong and I realised then I could go back and and do something and I thought, well, let me read some of my earlier novels to see how I used to do it. And so I picked my t- two of my favourites, which were The Beach House mm-hmm. and Second Chance and they were also what I call ensemble novels. Mm-hmm. They, they had a cast of characters right. and I went to France for a little vacation And I brought them with, and I was rather self-conscious reading my own books by the swimming pool, but I read (laughs) both of those books. You look a lot like the uh, the author. Yes, I know. (laughs) Um, Except much older, which is always something. Or people say, oh, no, you look nothing like your author picture. Um, But I read those those books by the pool, and it it brought me right back to what I used to do. And actually, when I came back, I had this editorial meeting with the with my new publisher now, and they had all these ideas for for Ronnie Sunshine, um, and one of the suggestions was make her dark and you know give her make her have borderline personality disorder. And we we had a whole discussion over lunch about the darkness that she would have. And I and I sat there. I went, yeah, 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 I can do that. And I went back home and I thought, no. I can't write a book to please other people anymore because that doesn't work for me. I have to write this in the way I wrote my first 12 novels, which is I write this by myself and I let the characters tell their own stories. Do they talk to you? Yes. And so I knew that this was a book about a woman called Ronnie Sunshine and I knew she was difficult and I knew she had these three daughters who came home, but I couldn't really have told you very much about the daughters. I didn't know. I had no idea what each of their stories would be. 
Because it's not a book about Ronnie Sunshine. No. It's a book about the daughters. It is. It's a book about the daughters. And it's a book about the same journey that all of my female characters are on, which is women that are looking for a place to call home. Mm-hmm. But always smart, always savvy, a little stupid with men, right? Yeah. Um, very talented in something you wouldn't imagine, mm. you know, that women would be in like, you know, running a farm, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Or doing these pop-up, um, you know, parties on rooftops yeah. around New York. Yeah. Yeah. With flights. Yeah. <laughs> the lights are very, have to have the lights. very important very lights, part yes. of the, the pop-up supper club. Right. Yeah. They tend to encompass all of my my obsessions of the moment make their way into uh, your obsessions of the moment. Yeah, so, so I it, it, even though we're going from ninety one to two thousand sixteen, they're the ones you were obsessed about when you wrote it. Well, yes, so I mean, if, if I if I had my druthers, I would be living on a farm. Really? Um, oh yes, I, I my thought you were dream, born in London. I was. Connecticut I, isn't really a farm. Well, is no, it? but I thought it was because I'd never been to Connecticut, oh. and I I really thought I was moving to Vermont or Maine. <laughs> I thought I was moving to the countryside. Yes, yes. Um, and I found myself in, of course, deep as dark as suburbia. But I I have this funny old little house in Connecticut that I've sort of turned into a little farm. You know, I grow all our own vegetables, and we have a the tiniest little orchard and I have chickens and mm, that's my twelve dollar tomato. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um so I you know I always dreamt of a farm. Um and then of course what well, I do let's, let's go back with this mm. a little bit. This is fascinating. I have got I've got to warn you that I'm a psychological educator, so I always do this. I kind of say, okay, well she opened that up. Let's go through that door. What appeals to you about a farm? Why wow. does Nell love it? Well, I I think that uh, there is quite a bit of me in each of these girls, actually, and the bit that's in Nell is the is the introverted part of me. Um, so many of us writers may love people, but we're we're true introverts. You know, we the way that we recharge our batteries is to retreat from the world and be by ourselves. And I am, you know, I am an introvert. I do love being by myself. And I love nature and peace. I that's what really fills my heart with joy. I am married to a man who is an extrovert. And he likes people Mm -hmm. and noise and hustle and bustle. And he would be around people when I go away on tour. And I phone home Every night when I phone home, there are people over for dinner. And he just last minute has, he just fills the house. Um, And whilst I do love that, I only love that when I'm in the mood for that. Right, when you're not in the midst of writing. Yeah, yeah. And and also it it tires me. I love being around people, (laughs) but I get very tired by it. Whereas he gets very energized by it. Um, So, Do you have to assume a persona as the... You know, the best-selling novelist yeah, kind yeah, of thing? I yeah, I do. I absolutely do. I mean, I also think I'm terribly um, mercurial and, and I'm a Gemini. And I, as I say to my husband, you got you got six for the price of one. You know, there are m- very many women um, 
that he that he has to. So you're at least a half a dozen different. Oh people. yeah, yeah. I, I keep it exciting. He never has a moment to get bored. Um, but I uh, so so one of them is is Jane Green, who's who's gregarious and fun loving and tells stories. And I I have this peculiar quirk where. I would rather stick needles in my eyes than walk into a cocktail party where I don't know anyone. But I will happily get up on stage in front of a thousand people and and do give yeah, speeches. Yeah, and again, that's the persona because I can step into a mm-hmm. a role and I'm protected by that. And Ronnie likes to do that. She likes to be the center of the stage and attention, and she's sort of. Um, I guess the word I can use to be polite would be upset with the fact that she never got above a B movie mm. kind of level. Mm. She never did become a real star. Mm. Although people recognize her. Yes. They say, Aren't you that? Who was, weren't you someone? Yeah. 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 yeah she's, um, and she's very imperious I, and rather grand. And I did think, um, I, I, I held, you know, often I will use a, almost a visual marker to help me as I'm writing. So when I'm when I'm describing the characters and I'm seeing them in my head, mm-hmm. they will often look like somebody that I've met or somebody that I know. Um, and Nell was a woman that I met quite briefly in a in a, a little organic market once upon a time and I she was very handsome and strong looking mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I was struck by her and so I, I thought very much that that is not who glamorous Nell should be. but still not glamorous yes. or very striking I and I, I ha- would have to say handsome um, and uh, with Ronnie I thought a, a, about a sort of young Joan her affect I thought of a as a young Joan Collins mm-hmm. so ah, rather rather yes. grand and, and touching English. her makeup would be the, the horrible thing to mm. do because that is very personal and yes private. that's her secret yes yeah. yes no one should know yes you are listening to word by word conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media KRCB FM to launch our second decade we are delighted to welcome the international best-selling novelist Jane Green and her newest novel The Sunshine Sisters it is the story of a self-obsessed B-movie star Ronnie Sunshine the dysfunctional relationship she has with her three daughters, Nell, Meredith, and Lizzie, and how they cope with their mother's narcissism. We've already met Nell and a little bit with Meredith, and now we're going to meet Lizzie in this next reading by Jane Green. Lizzie is smiling as she hangs up the phone. She loves her dad, but it is increasingly difficult to love him, given that her mother has hated him ever since the divorce, even though her mother was the one who was unfaithful, causing the divorce in the first place, and wants nothing more than for her daughters to hate him too. Ronnie won't forgive him for leaving her, and any time the girls mention their father, their mother follows it with a snarky remark. They are learning to keep quiet about loving their father, needing him, These times, when their mother is away, are the only times Lizzie can feel unreservedly good about seeing her father. She hangs up the phone and the two girls walk, leaning against each other, out the front door, as Lizzie shakes her head. I really don't know why he would care. Like, what's the worst that could happen? I throw a party and my mum's house gets trashed? He hates her. He'd probably be happy. Her parents don't actually say they hate each other, but when her father has to ask about anything that involves her mother, she sees his jaw clench with a slight tick. 
Not that she can blame him exactly. Lizzie loves her mother and hates her in equal measure. She loves her more than her sisters do, she is sure, because she has never been in her mother's crosshairs. She doesn't quite understand why her mother's moods bother her sister so much or why they react to her the way they do. It just makes things worse. Lizzie figured out early on that the thing to do when her mother lost it was to laugh. Lizzie laughs, and her laughter invariably seems to diffuse her mother's rage. Meredith tried the same approach, but when she laughed, it only served to make her mother angrier. The people who set her off have always been Nell and Meredith and their father. Not when they were all young, but as they got older... He ended up being a target too, and none of them knew about the affairs. Although, once the marriage broke up, all three girls learnt everyone knew that their mother had been having affairs for years. But the affair that broke up the marriage was different. He was a guest director brought in to direct a performance of A Doll's House at the Playhouse. Ronnie played Nora, naturally, and fell in love with the director, Naturally, except this one wasn't just an affair. This one, Ronnie announced, was her soulmate. Her soulmate was her soulmate for two years. Ronnie managed to be charming and her best self for a year and a half of those two years. Even Lizzie knew that the last six months were hell. She saw how her mother once she felt the director distancing himself, became more and more needy, more and more stressed. She would explode at the girls, her now ex-husband, and eventually the director, who ended it by having another affair with a well-known actress in New York. Ronnie then tried to make her way back to Robert, realising perhaps what she had given up when she had left him, but it had been too long. Lizzie's father told her that the two years away from her mother had been the most peaceful of his adult life. He explained that the end of the marriage was painful only in that he saw his three daughters far less than he would have liked, but, he told them, at least he no longer had a fourth daughter to look after in the form of an emotionally volatile wife. He was sorry he couldn't protect his daughters from her, he told the girls, but he thought that if he went back to her, he might die. Lizzie knew her mother hated her father after that. She would roll her eyes any time one of the girls would talk about their father and fill them with stories about how boring he was, what a terrible father he'd been, travelling for work so much instead of having a relationship with them. She would get in one of her moods and rage in front of the audience that was her daughter's that no one would make him happy again and he would never, ever find a woman like Ronnie. As it happens, now Robert has been dating someone the past few months. None of the girls particularly like her but Lizzie thinks that has less to do with her mother than it has to do with her and her sisters who despite recognising how difficult their mother is, still feel an obligation to protect her. Their father now lives in Greenwich, which is in itself a major pain in the ass. If he still lived in Westport, Lizzie would definitely see him more. Going to his house for the weekend, 
means having to miss out on her friends and hangouts and parties in Westport, and that's just no fun at all. He will drive Lizzie back and forth, but she doesn't want to be so far away. She doesn't want to miss out on anything, not when being a sophomore is so much fun. It's the perfect grade, she and Jackie have decided. You're over the newness and overwhelmingness of being a freshman in high school, where the school is huge and you feel like the baby all over again, and going to the cafeteria at lunchtime fills you with dread because you're terrified you're not going to be able to sit with your friends or anyone nice, and eating on your own means you'll be designated a loser for the rest of your school days. Then, in junior year, you have to spend all your time worrying about college, and the pressure is really on the first part of senior year, so sophomore year is perfect. When I read that, I, I should tell you that I have just been to uh, my granddaughter, oldest granddaughter's graduation from high school, and there were you know four or five student speakers who stood up. Every one of them talked about freshman year the same way. Ah. You know, and then how they finally got survived junior year. And then, you know, senior. My gosh, look, the world's our oyster. Just yeah. wait, of course, until yeah. the fall. But um, it was fascinating to read. Oh. Now, one other, I'm going to stop here for one thing. Do you read your work aloud after you've finished it? Um, I I do not read my work aloud, but I do narrate my audiobooks. I read my ah, own audiobooks. Okay. But what's really interesting is that there's usually quite a lot of time has gone by. And what I find is when I'm when I'm reading the audiobooks, I often pick up on things that I cannot pick up on when I'm reading them from a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes yeah. it's not too late for me to make changes. Um, often I will make changes as I'm reading. That's the beauty of it. I can sort of change it to whatever I sure. want. Um, and sometimes I, I can manage to get changes into the manuscript. So why, do, you publish, why, do you publish the audiobooks and the, and the, and the hardbounds at the same time? Now? I do, yeah. Oh. So you can listen to me now. Oh, great. Uh, listen, my voice can lull you to sleep. Or keep you awake. Or keep you awake. Right. Especially when we're in a, I'm trying to remember what it was, that little room with the spices on the wall. You know what I'm talking about? At the, they're setting up for a, a big do. A pantry? Yeah, the pantry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which we'll get into a little bit later. Okay. Now, I, there, that was just thrown out to titillate my listeners. Now they've got to, you know, look yeah. through the book for the pantry yeah. scene. So she's the youngest girl. She's the most like her mother. Yeah. Does she know that? Does Liz- yes, yeah, she does. And Lizzie, she's the baby of the family. And so often with the babies, they know precisely how to wind their their parents around their little fingers. So right. she does. And, and actually, uh, you know, that w- what I just read about her laughing at her mother. The she survival. Just, she's, it's yeah. survival. Yeah. And, and she's not enmeshed in that she's not dependent on her mother's approval. She knows she has it. She's the only one who feels that she has her mother's unconditional approval and love. Which sets her at an entirely different yeah. pace compared to her It sisters. really does. And yeah. she she ends up being the one that is this huge success because she's unstoppable. Mm-hmm. She's never felt anything but adored despite growing up in this crazy household. Right, right. Now, 
Um, let's see. Which I, I want us to meet Meredith. So, can we, do you mind reading another yeah. section? All right. We're going forward a little bit. We're in. Um, we're flashing forward to 2016, <coughs> and um, with Derek, her accountant. Oh, the dreadful Derek. The, <laughs> the dreadful. Oh, the Derek. DD. The word. Oh. The dreadful Derek. Yes. Well, he's uh, to put it boorish is kind of comes to mind, and lots of other words yes. too. Yes. Meredith hadn't had a proper relationship in years. She once thought that one day she might have made enough money from accountancy to give it up and do something creative. But she never went to another art class after her one-night stand with the art teacher, and that dream slowly faded to a vague thought once every couple of years. She stopped fighting the dullness of accountancy. She followed the rules of what the women in her office wore – Twin sets and pearls, sensible heels, pastel dresses in summer with nipped-in waists and white tights. She forgot that she had once expressed horror at white tights and began to wear them with closed-toe pumps. Even Meredith wasn't silly enough to wear white tights with open-toed sandals, although plenty of women at her office did. Mostly, she is happy with her life. She still wishes she were prettier, thinner, more somehow, but she is okay. When Derek asked her out to dinner, she said yes, flattered beyond measure that he had asked. And when the doubt set in, she reminds herself to remain flattered. If this was the life she was going to live, even if it wasn't the life she once wanted, then Derek was surely exactly the sort of husband she should have. She is 38 years old, after all. She was supposed to have been married and having children long ago. And so, when Derek flew her to New York for her birthday and got down on one knee in the Rainbow Room, how could she possibly say no? Derek's looks hide the fact that he is, or can be, patronising and superior. She feels guilty even thinking that. Far easier for her to focus on his good qualities, even if sometimes it is quite hard to think what they are. He is affable and kind, surely. At least he isn't unkind. He is turning 50 and he treats her like a princess. At least he did in the beginning, before they got engaged. He seemed unable to believe someone like Meredith would go out with him, let alone marry him. Attention and adoration were not something Meredith was used to. The experience with Nicholas, being treated as disposable, had put her off men for years. She hadn't seen anyone until Derek appeared, like a knight in shining armour, to restore her faith. If he is a little dull, surely that's a good thing. Where has excitement gotten her? It seems far safer to give her heart over to someone like Derek. Although there are times when she isn't entirely sure she has given her heart to him. But perhaps it is safer this way. This is pragmatic, sensible. This is the stuff of which the strongest marriages are made, surely. Choosing your mate 
is so very much wiser than falling in love with someone who will undoubtedly break your heart. Mm-hmm. Ah, the Disney princess. <laughs> I, it's, you know, it's, this is the 19th, my 19th novel. And the hard thing about writing 19 novels and writing about life is that we writers are like magpies. We, we shamelessly mine our own lives. And, of course, we steal from everyone around us. But um, I, every time I pick up any one of my books and read from them, I recognize aspects of my – you know, even though none of these girls are me, I do recognize aspects of my life in all of them. And I do um, – Worried that at a certain point you run, you run out. You know you've had you've done that relationship in many different forms, many different fa- times. That's a, that's a rela- the kind of relationship I've written about a number of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were raised in Britain, had your career in Britain, mm. um, but this is a very American novel. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not in, in the sense that uh, anyone in you know, this area in Sonoma County could pick it up and immediately recognize yeah. these people. Yeah. Yeah. It's not – they're not doing something in a qualitatively different way yeah. or manner. It's it's relatable. Yeah. I – when I first came here, which was uh, uh, almost – well, 16 and a half years ago I've been mm-hmm. living here. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, all my early novels were set in England. And then right. I moved here and I thought, oh, well, I better have a bit of America in there. And I fell completely in love with Connecticut when I first moved there. So I started doing a bit of half and half. And then a few years went by and I wrote The Beach House, Mm -hmm. which was entirely peopled by by Americans. And then my British publisher sat me down and said, no, 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 we've got to have a little bit of England in these books. Um, And so I, I... put a bit of English back. So, but they, I think they are quite American now. I think the sensibilities are more American. I think I've been, I, I, you know, this, this is home. I'm naturalized. I'm an American citizen. I'm married to an American. My kids are American. They run around the house calling me mom. And I go, it's mummy. Not I've mummy. Given up. Yeah, I've no. given up now. <laughs> when they were little, I'd say it's mummy, darling, right. mummy. Mummy, um, right. And, you know, I, I'm truly... I'm. I, it's not even that I'm a half and half anymore because I. I'm. This is my home, and I think that I've become slightly more Americanized. Um, and I just had a meeting with my British publisher, and they put a really interesting suggestion to me, and they did it rather doubtfully and rather nervously, and they said, "Look, your books feel very American to us now." Which is fine, but it, you know, our, our British audience really like to see a British book. And how would you feel about the same book, but transplanting it to Britain? So you 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 take your characters and the story, but instead of setting them in mm-hmm. in Connecticut or California or wherever it is, we set them in London and Dorset, and and I I actually and change some of the spelling. We ch- yeah, we right. have to put the oh, U's are, back right. in. We have yeah. to put the U's back into color. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually think it's a it's a brilliant idea. Because the truth is, I think 
human frailties are human frailties. It doesn't matter where you live. And culturally, this could be English. It happens to be set in America. Well, it's a certain socioeconomic class. Yes, that, is, that's very that true. would cross the pond, as they say. So I think I'm going yeah. to try it. I shall try it with the with the next novel. I shall write it as an American because that's how I – I also feel I left London 16 and a half right. years ago and it has changed so dramatically that I couldn't I – can, I can take – I can write about English women like me who grew up in London, but I can't write what it is to live in London like, like, now. Uh, Miss Sunshine here. Yes, yes, yeah. And so I might have to go and spend a bit more time there and see if I can do two versions of the same book. Well, I'm wondering, you, you know, there have been such a tremendous shift of um, sentiment in this past year, both in the United States and in Britain, with all the political upheavals that are going on and the, no, we're not part of EU and no, we're not going to be in the, you know, the... the uh, accord to save the world kind of thing anymore, that um, you've been immersed in the American side of it. it so I'm wondering if this is going to be difficult for you to, to write or are you going to set it back 20 years or something? No, I, I think, I mean, my the sentiments that I have about about Brexit I, I, I are exactly the same as everybody I... I know uh, my age, right. you know, living in London, and I know this because we're all Facebook friends, and we're all equally horrified by what's by what's going no. on. We're not pensioners. We're not. We're not yearning nostalgically for a romantic version of an England in the nineteen, you know, thirties that that never existed. Didn't the even wars, exist yeah, then. Yeah. 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 Um, and but unfortunately, you know, we that's that's very much what happened. Um, and then the young people didn't show up to vote. No. The the no. sort of apathy which I think is happens here as well. Well it did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, then we had this extraordinary election called and the young people showed up to vote. I mean, at least they right. were woken up, and that's my goodness. I think if May hasn't believed it yet. Yeah, no, she she clearly hasn't. Um, but if there is anything good to come out of what is going on in the world right now, and it's a more frightening place than I have ever seen, and uh, you know, and I do believe we've we've taken the last seventy odd years of peace entirely for granted. We mm -hmm. just presumed it would go on forever. Mm -hmm. But if there is anything good to come out of the state of the world right now, it is that that vast numbers of people have woken up. Yes. Amen to that. Well, okay. So um, one of the things that happens is that Ronnie hooks up with a documentary filmmaker and she puts on her, you know, but what she does, she doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to be interviewed. She doesn't want to be on film because she doesn't look the way she used to. And then she realizes this is my opportunity to play the, you know, the, the dying role on the couch. <laughs> Right? Yes, yeah. And so she announces not only that she has AOS, but that she intends to take her own life when her daughters are around. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Which sets up a interesting dynamic, shall mm. we say. It does. And I really I I hadn't planned what the girl's reaction to that was going to be. And and what I found when I got there was that even though they happily 
denigrated their mother and their childhood at every opportunity and were so still resentful and and sometimes angry and dismissive of her when she asked them to to do this mm-hmm. they refused they couldn't they were horrified by the prospect of of being responsible in that way for that and and didn't see it as as uh as what others may have seen it as an act of love, you know, allowing her to go peacefully in the way that she right, chose, but right. um, would just, you know, could not countenance this fact at all. Um, but again, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's it was really, even that was the device to, to for me as a writer to bring these girls home. And, and once home... We could truly see the the impact that their childhood had on them, what their relationship with their mother had become, and how they resolved it. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of my books have to have resolution of some kind. It doesn't necessarily have to be the happy ending that, that we want. It doesn't have to come neatly tied in a bow, but there has to be some kind of resolution. And I do think that the girls all have final time with their mother Mm -hmm. which may not always be comfortable in Lizzie's case you know it's really uncomfortable actually that final her final uh, um, sort of goodbye chat with her mother is awful her mother reveals some very painful truths about Lizzie but it ultimately helps Lizzie ultimately it is an act of love because it's helping Lizzie not mess up her life in the way that she has been Mm -hmm. We don't want to give away too much. We're not no. giving okay. away too much, any more. Don't than go that. any further. Yeah, right. It's interesting. Um, my daughter-in-law's mother had ALS and was on a respirator for twelve years. Oh my goodness! In California, you have the right to choose to turn it off. Mm. So I was. It was. Con- it was an interesting contrast reading. You know the the scenes that you set up mm. compared to what I had witnessed. You know. From afar, yes. yes, of the well, t- I, and times have changed, you know, obviously, and the laws are changing all the time. But uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to get into that right. argument. Right. I, I and I, so I wanted it very much to be just Ronnie's decision. You know, I want you to help me, and I want you to, I want you, I want you to be here with me. It wasn't even she wasn't on a respirator. She, she never right. got, she never wanted to get that far. She wanted, she knew that she couldn't stop it, and she wanted. She, all she was saying was, "I'm, I'm doing this, and I want you with me." And I want to be in control. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, the movie is. I'm the movie. Chimney Creek. We never talked no, about no, the movie. But, we were going to talk about. Well, I, but I we love gonna... that you said that because it's putting it out into the universe. So, yes. So who knows? Because what will it is a movie. Well, I mean, it's. I, I it's so obviously. So. A movie. I, I hope so. I I have uh, just sold the Beach House, which will oh, be a movie, um, and I also um, Lifetime are turning Tempting Fate into a movie with a view to a TV series. series? Yeah. Oh. And. And family pictures, and one of the others. They're, they've got three of them. Lifetime. You get a chance to, to do any of the casting picks. Um, you didn't put yourself down as executive editor. I, I hope you did. Yeah, I'm exe- I am. I'm okay. executive producer, okay. and actually, I, I've been quite involved in the Beach House. I did get to throw out my my wish list. Um, although they sent me their wish list, and at the top for the Beach House uh-huh. for the character of Nan. They had uh, Helen Mirren, which is my well, she's my yes. number one choice. So, yeah, yeah, I was very happy. Oh, good, that would be fun. Mm. Yeah, we have been listening to 
word-by-word conversations with writers right here on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where we launched our second decade chatting with the international best-selling novelist Jane Green with her newest novel, The Sunshine Sisters, the story of a self-obsessed B-movie star, Ronnie Sunshine, and the dysfunctional relationship she has with her three daughters. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast is Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell, radio coordinator Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for our next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, August 14th. Until then, here's an inspirational quote for all the writers out there from Jane Green's My First Million feature in the Financial (laughs) Times. When asked, what is the secret of your success Jane answers. Discipline. I am tremendously disciplined, as it would have been so easy to give up after my first agent rejection letter. My training as a journalist was invaluable. When I worked on the Daily Express, the editor would often ask for a thousand words within a couple of hours. I couldn't say I was not inspired. I had to get on with it.